Uh, when it comes to questions, uh, life is full of them. Uh, life has all kinds of questions. Some are big, some are small, some are important, some are not so important. Uh, some questions are really consequential and, and some questions are very little consequence. We ask questions, uh, we face questions, and this starts really early on in life. Uh, sometimes early on in life, uh, we are forced to think about some really big things, and that's what questions do. Questions force us to think, and it, they force us to think in a particular direction. Um, how many of y'all remember when you were a little kid and some adult would come along, maybe a mom, dad, grandparent, or aunt or uncle, or just somebody, they would come up and they would ask you, what are you going to be when you grow up? And oftentimes we're just little and, you know, but then we got to think about it. And so perhaps you'd say fireman or fire person. Uh, maybe you would say, you know, policeman, policewoman. Uh, maybe you wanted to be in the military. Uh, maybe, you know, you wanted to be this or that. But uh, I can remember back when I was about five or six and I would get the question, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up, Trevor? Trevor, hey, what do you want to be when you grow up? And, you know, an adult would always ask it and, you know, they just get a kick out of asking little kids questions like that that the kid can't possibly know how to answer. And, and so, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up, Trevor? And, and, and I can remember being five or six. I tried to think about it last night and pinpoint it, but when I was five or six, I would always answer, I would say, I want to be an obstetrician and gynecologist. And that was before I married one. And I did. I, I mean, it was serious. I, I, would, I would go to class, and you know how the back of desks, they are cut out, you know, they have that little open area, you know, in the back, and I'd get down and like pretend I was delivering a baby. I had a real, real flair for it. And, and so, you know, obviously I was a weird kid, but I grew out of it, and, and so, you know, but I did. I said, I want to be an OBGYN. I want to be a doctor. I want to deliver babies. That's what I want to do, and then, then I, I changed, and uh, I decided I wanted to be a pastor, so my grandparents, they bought me the suit, and so I, I would put on my suit, and then I would put baby powder in my hair to make my hair look gray because all of our preachers were old, and, and, and so then I would get up on the coffee table, and I would preach and pretend that I was a pastor, obviously a bivocational pastor because I was OBGYN through the week, and, and so I, I, I would deliver babies through the week, and preach on the weekends and, and and then I decided I wanted to be an attorney and I, I know it's weird it's kind of crazy it's kind of vulnerable for me to tell you these things I'm really putting myself out there I hope it's not going to be you know something that leaves this room but uh, I, I then pretend to be an attorney I you know put my suit on and my you know I had this attache briefcase that I, I got for Christmas one year and uh, don't ask questions and, and, and so I had this briefcase and I had legal pads in there and I, I would sit down and I would write you know out like a mock opening argument or closing argument and pretend I was you know arguing before the Supreme Court, and I would just go on with that. I had a really vivid imagination, and of course, there were other things, but, but those were kind of like the, the big ones, and, and I, I just had an answer to it. Uh, those were a big question back in the day, and then before you know it, you know, what are you going to be when you grow up? You, you blink a few times, and all of a sudden, it's what are you going to major in? 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 And now it feels a lot more, you know, stressful, and now it's a lot more consequential, and, and especially these days, because when most high school students graduate, or some high school students graduate high school, they're already like a junior in college and it's like you know they're graduating high school and having to think about a major all at the same time it's like oh my gosh this is a big question big question I don't know what to do what do you think I ought to do I don't know what I want to do what do you think I ought to do I can't tell you what to do and, you know questions they're big some of them are bigger than others and then then you blink a few more times and it's the question of will you marry me I'll never forget when Allison asked me <laughs> I was so overwhelmed no she didn't and then, is it a boy or is it a girl? And it's like, what? Is it a boy or a girl? And, and you're just leaning in. I mean, questions are they're a big deal. And then, then there's moments of life, and maybe it's happened in a season for you that was recent, or maybe it was a long time ago. We, 
We dig a little bit deeper and the questions are a little bit more transcendent and ethereal and abstract. And, and we ask questions like, well, where did I come from? Like if you just stop and thought, where did I come from? Am I, am I a cosmic accident? Am I just a product of biology and chemistry and physics? You know, where did I come from? Why am I here? How should I live? You know, if I'm here and there's a why, then how should I live and, and where does that standard come from? And how should I base my standard for how I think I should or shouldn't live my life? Where does, where does all that come from? And then questions like, and what happens after we die? Now, all big questions and, and very consequential questions. You know, does God exist? And, and if God exists, what is he like? And, and there's so many great questions in life, so many big questions that every single person should take seriously and think about because some of them are really important and some of them are highly consequential. But today, for the sake of our discussion, I wanna introduce you to what I think is one of, if not the most important question that you can wrestle with as an individual. Uh, despite what your background is and despite what your story has been and despite what you claim to be, you know, religiously or a Christian or not a Christian, you know, a believer in God, not a believer in God, you know, despite all of that, there's a question that every single person should wrestle with. And I think it is one of, if not the most profound question, and one of the most, if not the most consequential question that we can wrestle with. And, and the question is, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Now, just for the sake of letting you know, th there's really not a debate anymore among any reasonable scholar that Jesus exi didn't exist. I mean, everybody, believer and you know, follower of Jesus or not, everybody pretty much knows Jesus was a real person of history. That's just a settled fact. So, you know, do you believe that Jesus existed? That, that's really like a conversation from decades ago that no person who has serious credentials takes seriously anymore. But this is a question that you have to wrestle with as an individual. Now, everybody's got an opinion about who Jesus is. Religions have an opinion about Jesus. Christianity has an opinion about Jesus. Islam has an opinion about Jesus. Judaism has an opinion about Jesus. Different parts of Christianity and different people who claim to be under that banner, they have different opinions about Jesus. Uh, the Church of Latter-day Saints have an opinion about Jesus. You know, Jehovah Witness have an opinion about Jesus. Baptists have an opinion about Jesus. Pentecostals, Catholics, Anglicans, everybody has an opinion about Jesus. Individuals, collective groups, families have an opinion about Jesus that have been passed down from one generation to another. So who is Jesus? And there have been lots of scholars and lots of notable people who have spoken to this question. One being a historian by the name of H.G. Wells. He said this, he said, the historian's test of an individual's greatness, the historian's test of an individual's greatness is what did he leave to grow? Once he was gone, once he stepped off the pages of history, what did he leave behind? Did he help men think about new ideas with a vigor that persisted after he was gone? He says, that's how historians measure greatness. And then he goes on to say, by this test, Jesus stands first. In other words, we are still wrestling with some of the ideas that Jesus introduced into the world. We are still struggling as a culture 
in America and as a planet with some of the ideas that Jesus introduced, like the dignity of every single person, the worth of every single person. We're still struggling through all of that. And he says, you want to measure greatness by that? Jesus stands first. At another place, at another time, he said this. He says, I'm a historian. I'm not a believer. So this is not from a Christian. But I must confess as a historian that this penniless preacher from Nazareth is irrevocably the very center of history. And that's fascinating to begin with. When you think of all the people of history, he says the very center of history. Jesus Christ is easily the most dominant figure in all of history. Albert Einstein, maybe you've heard about him, pretty smart guy. He said this, as a child, I received instruction both in the Bible and in the Talmud. I am a Jew, but I am enthralled by the luminous figure of the Nazarene. No one can read the gospels without feeling the actual presence of Jesus. That's amazing. His personality pulsates in every word. No myth is filled with such life. The French emperor, Napoleon Bonaparte, he, he said this, he says, I know men and I tell you that Jesus Christ is no mere man. Between him and every other person in the world, there is no possible term of comparison. Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and I founded empires, but on what did we rest the creations of our genius? He said, upon force. But Jesus Christ founded his empire upon love and at this hour, millions of people, he said, would be willing to die for him. Rousseau, a French philosopher, maybe you were forced to read him or maybe you chose to read him at some point in your life. He says this, he says, Socrates dies with honor, surrounded by disciples listening to the most tender words, the easiest death that one could wish to die. Jesus dies in pain, dishonor, mockery, the object of universal cursing, the most horrible death that one could fear. At the receipt of the cup of poison, Socrates blesses, him who could not give it to him without tears. Jesus, while suffering the sharpest pain, prays for his most bitter enemies. If Socrates lived and died like a philosopher, Jesus lived and died like a God. And then one of my favorite people to read after, he's a theologian, he's a historian, Philip Schaff, he said this. He said, Jesus of Nazareth, without money and arms, without a territory, without army, without a treasury, he conquered more millions than Alexander the Great, Caesar, Muhammad, and Napoleon. Without science and learning, he shed more light on things human and divine than all the philosophers and scholars combined. Again, we're still wrestling with some of the things that he brought into the world by way of his teaching. Without the eloquence of school, he spoke such words of life as were never spoken before of or since. And produced effects which lie beyond the reach of orator or poet. Without writing a single line, he set more pens in motion. Furnished themes for more sermons, orations, discussions, learned volumes, work of arts, and songs of praise in the whole army of great men of ancient and modern times. I mean, lots of people have spoken into this question, who is Jesus? But sooner or later, you will have to come to a conclusion about Jesus. Sooner or later, you will have to decide for yourself, just not what somebody told you about Jesus, you will have to decide for yourself. This is a question that you should read some about. This is a question that you should listen to some things about. This is a question you should not be intimidated to investigate because every person needs to come to a personal conclusion, an informed personal conclusion about who is Jesus. Now, every single one of you and every single one of you in Somerset and Williamsburg, there is something that comes to mind when Jesus crosses your mind. 
When Jesus crosses your mind, there's something that comes to mind. There's an image, there's an idea, there's emotion, there's an experience, there's a memory. Because when it comes to Jesus, everybody has assumptions about Jesus. Everybody has opinions about Jesus. Everybody has some type of experience with Jesus or somebody who claimed to follow Jesus. Everybody has emotions that are connected in some way to this rabbi from Nazareth by the name of Jesus. Now, your opinions about Jesus, my assumptions about Jesus, my experiences, my emotions about Jesus, just like for many of you, if not most of you, began to be formulated in childhood. That's where you began to construct your ideas and your image, your emotions, and your experiences about Jesus. It goes all the way back to childhood. Now, you weren't thinking about it in those terms. But someone was handing you an image of Jesus. Someone was handing you ideas about Jesus. Somebody was teaching you about Jesus. Now, most of us were introduced to Jesus for the very first time through song. And I guarantee you that most of you know it. You were taught it even before you understood words. It goes something like this. Jesus loves me, this I know, come on, for the Bible tells me so. And so you can sing it today. And that was beginning to formulate our ideas and the images that come to mind about Jesus. Little ones to him belong, they are weak, but he is strong, yes. Jesus loves me, yes. Jesus loves me, yes. Jesus loves me, the Bible tells me so. And all of a sudden now we are developing a theology. All of a sudden we're developing a framework. We're developing opinions and assumptions about Jesus. And then in childhood we are introduced to Jesus uh, mainly, I think, not only through the songs that were taught, but also through holidays. And, and, you know, as childhood goes, you know, the great one was Christmas for many of us. And, and so we were introduced to little baby Jesus in the manger. And all of a sudden, again, we, we develop opinions about Jesus. We see pictures of the nativity. And, and, and it's just so wonderful. And it's so colorful. And it's great. And, you know, grandma's got one on the coffee table. And they, they put one up at church. And, and you get all these ideas. And you don't know their ideas. And you don't know you're picking it up. But you're picking things up along the way and all of a sudden you're hanging these things in your brain and in your heart and you're coming to this conclusion or a set of conclusions about Jesus and then then you get older and you see pictures like this and you you begin to have conflict and you begin to think about it differently because you're no longer a child but now you're an adult and you start noticing you know look at Mary just just look at her ladies would you look at Mary and as someone who aspired to be an OBGYN when I was five or six years old, there's something I want to point out to you. She just got through walking 70 miles from Nazareth to Bethlehem and had labor, labor without an epidural, gave birth to little baby Jesus, and she looks like she just got out of the spa. I mean, look at that complexion. Look at her hair. I mean, my, she's a doll. I mean, it's unbelievable. And, and then, you know, sensible adulthood, you pay attention, you know, that's a fire hazard. They've got that candle entirely too close to the hay in Jesus's major. I mean, poof, that would be bad for the world. And, and then there's other pictures of, you know, we picked up along the way. It's like, she's glowing. Mary's actually glowing. And I know we go up to, you know, new mothers just recently gave birth. and was, oh, you're glowing. We don't really mean it. We just kind of mean you look better than what we thought you would. It's like, what? You know, it's not actually like you're glowing. It's, 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 it's just a thing we do. And, and, and then, you know, there's a flutist. I mean, who of us didn't have a flutist at our birth? And it's like, you know, it's like, oh my gosh, this, this seems almost 
You know, it's like, I don't know. And, and then, you know, there were those childhood Sunday school sermons and lessons. And then you, you know, you would, you would paint pictures, you know, color pictures of Jesus. And there's one, Peter sinking in the water. You know, there is Jesus, some type of odd helmet device on top of his head. <laughs> we're not quite sure what that's for, but hey, there it is. And we're left, you know, with lots of questions. And then, you know, Easter, another Christian holiday, uh, there's Jesus, and, and you obviously can tell how excited he is about being raised from the dead. <laughs> big day, big day, and uh, you can't hardly contain the joy. And it's like, okay, so is Jesus ever happy? Does Jesus ever smile? Is Jesus stoic? Is he just tortured? Is, is that the picture of Jesus? And that would explain why so few Christians are actually happy. And, and it's like, okay, so we're picking up some things about Jesus. We're, we're learning some things. And then we're introduced to, you know, introduced to some adult versions of Jesus you know, in the movies. Uh, most of them creepy. Uh, most of them kooky. Um, Jesus is portrayed in movies most of the time. Not always, but most of the time Jesus is portrayed in the movies in a way that if you're a parent of a young child, you would never leave your young child with this person who plays Jesus or looks like Jesus. If this guy who looks like Jesus got on your flight, you are like... The TSA, 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 you know, it, it just, this Jesus. I mean, like, here's some of the pictures of Jesus in the movies. Jesus is smoldering. What's he looking at in this moment? Obviously, it's something righteous, but what is he smoldering at? And then, you know, other pictures of Jesus, you know, it's like, I just, enough! Shut up! You stupid, you know, it's like, you know, Jesus angry, somebody's sitting, you know, boy, he's, he's getting ready to come after them. Then there's like, you know, Jesus who's been, man, such smooth skin. It's like, wow, that's impressive. What kind of filtered Jesus use there on Instagram? I mean, whoa. And here's another picture of Jesus. No, it's not him. Uh, there, there, there's Jesus. And it's like, wow, what healthy hair. And it's like all this stuff, and men are looking. Men look at this, and men are like, I don't know. I mean, Jesus kind of seems kind of a little sissy, a little girlish. I don't know. He kind of, I don't know. I just can't relate to Jesus. I, I, I kind of feel like I'm a little bit more manly than Jesus. And it's never a good day when you feel more manly than Jesus. And, and so men begin to check out on faith. And it's what's happened all over our country. Churches are full of women, and where are the men? And maybe our ideas about Jesus have something to do with it. Uh, a few years ago, some scholars got together and they studied genetics and they studied the bone structure from skeletons from the first century and also from like the Shroud of Turin. Maybe you've heard about that before you can Google it afterward. And, and they tried their best to try to come up with what Jesus looked like. And, and so this is what they, you know, suspect that Jesus may look like. And, you know, if you've been around Christian circles very long, you're thinking, that's not Jesus. Don't you remember Jesus in the manger back there a few pictures ago? Little Middle Eastern Jew baby. He was blonde hair and blue eyes. I mean, Jesus doesn't look like that. Jesus is white. It's like, no, Jesus is from Palestine. Jesus is from the Middle East. This is probably what Jesus looked like, they say. And we're thinking, I, I don't even know who he is anymore. Uh, he doesn't have long hair. He kind of he looks gruff and tough and not the Jesus. So here's my point. You have ideas about Jesus. You have images about Jesus. Some of them need to be challenged. Some of them need to be poked at. You're not even aware of some of them. We all have an image or idea of Jesus that we've chosen to believe in or disbelieve in. What if the version of Jesus that you have believed in or disbelieved in is incomplete? Or worse, incorrect. What if the version of Jesus that you've believed in is incorrect or incomplete? 
So the story of Jesus, as we open up the pages of the New Testament, there's expectation in the air. There's anticipation in the air. People are chattering that something is happening out in the desert. Something's happening out there in the Judean wilderness. People in Jerusalem are whispering in the streets. People on the Temple Mount, they're talking about some strange character that has emerged in the wilderness. Someone that many people think may be a prophet. And there hadn't been a prophet in Israel in 400 years when the New Testament opens up. When the New Testament opens up, there is this expectation that maybe Jesus, that maybe that God rather is about to keep his promise of sending a Messiah into the world. So lots of things are happening when we open up the pages of the New Testament. And this is where the public story of Jesus begins. Luke says, in the 15th year, in the 15th year, now this is history. If you love history, you should pay attention to how Luke writes about this because this is not once upon a time. This is, let me tell you about once upon a period in history. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. Tiberius Caesar was the adopted son of Caesar Augustus, also known as Octavia, Octavian. Octavian had transitioned the Roman Republic to a Roman Empire. And Judea had become a territory of Rome known as Roman Judea in the first century. And so as the pages of the, Old Test, as the New Testament open up, Rome is the occupying force in Israel. And so he's setting the historical context for it. He says, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, that was Tiberius' point man in Judea. That was the guy who was calling the shots in Roman Judea. Herod, King Herod, he's going to be part of this story. He's already been part of the story. Herod was the Tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, Tetrarch of Ituria, Trachonitis, and Licinius, Tetrarch of Abilene. During the priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, Annas and Caiaphas, they basically controlled the temple. They basically controlled the Sanhedrin, which was the supreme court of their day. Whoever controlled the Sanhedrin, whoever controlled the temple, controlled wealth and controlled power and influence. And so here's what Luke is saying. These are the power players when the story of Jesus takes place. These are the people who are seated in high places. He says, while all of this was going on, when Palestine was a territory of Rome, when Rome had brought all of their values and customs and immorality to the land of Israel and the people of Israel couldn't stand it, and while the Jewish people were clinging to their temple and to their law, to try to resist Roman and Greek influence. He says, something began to happen. He says, the word of God came to John. You may know him as John the baptizer or John the Baptist. The word of God came to John, son of Zechariah in the wilderness. Now, John, he was an eccentric guy. He, he was a guy who ate a little bit strange and dressed a little bit strange. And he's out there preaching in the Judean desert, out there in the wilderness out there in the Jordan River Basin. And he's preaching in a way that nobody had heard anybody preach like that before. He's bold, he's charismatic, he, he's an in-your-face type of communicator. And for the first time in 400 years, people are talking about a prophet in the land of Israel. God had stopped talking in the book of Malachi and 400 years had gone by and God hadn't really said much. And now all of a sudden, people are talking about a prophet in the land. And they think that John is a prophet. They think that John may be more than a prophet. He's the son of an aristocratic priest. 
John should have been part of the aristocratic you know, class of people in Jerusalem. He should have took, taken over for his father, Zechariah, but, but here he is out here in the desert and he doesn't look aristocratic and he doesn't talk aristocratic and he's challenging the aristocracy of his day. He's challenging the establishment of his day. He's challenging the status quo of his day. And he's preaching in such a way. He's calling out hypocrisy among the religious leaders. He's calling out corruption among, you know, the political leaders. And people just can't get enough of what John is saying. Because people, the common people, they're thinking, finally, somebody's saying it. Somebody's saying what we've been thinking. Somebody's saying what we all know. And of course, the aristocracy, the power players, the people in control, the people who have the most to lose if the status quo changes are the people who are most motivated to protect the status quo. And so they, they don't like to be challenged and they don't like what's being said about John. This is a bit scary for them. And then Mark, he picks up on this whole storyline. He says, the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, out to John. And listen to this, confessing their sins. This was different. Jewish people didn't confess their sins to somebody like John. Jewish people went to the temple and offered a sacrifice for their sin. They needed a priest to be there. They needed a priest to oversee the ritual and to oversee the sacrifice. But they were confessing their sins to John and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River for the forgiveness of their sins. And this was brand new because Jewish people didn't get baptized. Now Gentiles who wanted to join the Jewish religion they would, they would baptize themselves without the aid of a priest. They would kind of immerse themselves. They would go down. They would come back up. And when they come back up, they were giving a signal that they no longer wanted to follow their Gentile ways, but they wanted to follow the teachings of the Jewish religion. And so when it came to, uh, you know, John, he was out there listening to people's confession. He was out there baptizing them. And he, he was operating like a temple. And the people back in Jerusalem, Annas and Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin and the people who controlled the temple and, and the people who controlled the temple, like I said, that's where they got their wealth and influence. They said, well, if people are going out to John by the thousands and they're confessing sins and being baptized for forgiveness without the sacrifices here at the temple, they're going to think they don't need the temple anymore. And if they don't need the temple anymore, they don't need us anymore. And where are we going to get our power from? How are we going to hold on to our authority and to our wealth and so they were very threatened. And don't ever forget, whether it's in 21st century America or 1st century Palestine, the people who have the most to lose if the status quo changes are the people who are most motivated to protect the status quo. And so the people in Jerusalem, they were a bit worried by all of this because John was so bold and charismatic. And people just, they were traveling hours by foot out into the desert to listen to him. And so people were very taken by him. And everybody's talking. Everybody wonders, who is this guy? Is he a prophet? Is he something more? They're talking about it on the streets of Jerusalem. They're talking about it in the secret councils up at the temple. Luke says, the people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. The Jewish people had been given a promise to Abraham that one day, through them, the whole world was going to be blessed. That there was a glorious future that awaited the Jewish people that would be initiated by a Messiah, by a Savior, by a Deliverer, by a King. And, and there were always a group of people waiting for that Messiah, hoping against hope that he would show up. And so John's out there and thousands of people, they've not seen this type of movement in a long time. 
Jewish religion had become formalized. It, it had become ritualistic. Now all of a sudden there's passion. Now all of a sudden people are excited. People are thinking, God's doing something out there in the desert. They're telling their friends. They're inviting. They say, you got to go here, John. Now, you can't pay attention to how he dresses or what he eats, but listen to what he says because when he talks, you can feel it. There's, there's passion behind what he's saying. There's truth to what he's saying. And people, for the first time in a long time, they thought that God was about to do something big. And so they wondered, is John a prophet or is he something more than a prophet? Now, John, because all the gospel writers, uh, to some degree, tell this story because this really is the beginning of the story of Jesus. John says, now this is John's testimony. This was John the Baptist's testimony when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. Because again, everybody's talking. Is he a, is he a prophet? Is he the per first prophet in 400 years? Is he the Messiah? And so they're having secret council meetings up on the Temple Mountain. The Sanhedrin are getting together and Annas and Caiaphas and everybody's saying, listen, there's something going on out there in the desert. It's John. And somebody says, well, who's John? And they're like, listen, you know who he is. You remember his father, Zechariah. He was a priest here at the temple. And if you remember about 30 years ago, his wife, Elizabeth, who was old in age, all of a sudden she became pregnant in her older years and she began to tell people that she was visited by an angel. Do y'all remember that? And some of them were like, oh yeah, I forgot about that. She was telling everybody that she was visited by an angel and that she was going to have this birth of a child who had a divine mission. And then Zechariah, remember, he said he lost his voice. And then one day he was in there at the altar. And all of a sudden, you know, he, he finally, you know, surrendered and said, Okay, God, I, I realize that you've given us this gift and I'm going to name it. I'm going to name this son John. And all of a sudden he received his voice back. And everybody was talking about this, this special birth to Zechariah and Elizabeth. That's who that is out there. And there had been rumors attached to John for 30 years. And nobody really knew what had happened to him in the last few years. But finally they said, He's back. He's out there. That's who everybody's going to listen to. And so they're kind of scared because he's the son of a priest. And there's all these rumors about his birth. And they say, well, somebody's got to go out there and find out who this guy is. Somebody's got to go find out exactly what he's up to. And so they send out some of their people, some of the leaders. And they, they go up to John. And this is, says he did not. John did not fail to confess. Almost like they're, you know, kind of poking at him and you know, accusing him. He did not fail to confess, but confessed freely. I am not the Messiah. So, I mean, they came to Jesus, they came to John and said, listen, people are saying, people are saying things. People, people are saying you're a Messiah. Are you the Messiah? And John, you know, he, if he was self-serving, if he was looking for a platform, if he was looking to use people or manipulate people, he had a moment of opportunity. If he was a charlatan, if he was a, you know, a wolf in sheep's clothing, if, if any of those things were true, this was his moment. But he said, I am not the Messiah. And then they ask him, they go on and they ask him, he says, you know, <clears throat> then who are you? Who are you? Are you Elijah? Because, you know, the prophet Malachi said that before the Messiah shows up, there's going to be, you know, the spirit of Elijah that shows up in some ways says, no, I, I'm not him, which is interesting because I feel like I need to point this out. In other parts of the Gospels, uh, John is associated with John the Baptist. Even Jesus associates John the Baptist with Elijah. Uh, but Elijah says, no, I'm not, because apparently Jesus had a higher opinion of John than he had of himself. Are you Elijah? He said, no, I'm not. Are you the prophet? Because back there in the Torah, back in the Pentateuch, Moses said that in the latter days, before Messiah comes, there's going to be a prophet. And when that prophet shows up, you are to listen to him. Are you the prophet Moses talked about? He said, no. 
And so finally, they're kind of getting frustrated. They're like, well, who are you then? If you're not, you know, Elijah, if you're not the prophet Moses talked about, then who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us because John, you're worrying some very powerful people. You know what can happen to people like you because they've squashed people like you before. They've taken people like you out before. Matter of fact, you can study the first century and all kinds of people who claimed to show up and claimed to be the Messiah were silenced and leveled by the temple. And John, you've made some enemies. What do you say about yourself? And I love this. And John says in the words of the prophet Isaiah, he says, I am the voice. That's what I am. I'm a voice. I'm a messenger. I'm a mouthpiece. I'm here on a divine mission. And my, miss, my mission is a message. I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness. And he goes back and he quotes from the prophet Isaiah. And he says, make straight the way for the Lord. He said, let me tell you what my job is. My job is to prepare you. My job is to prepare you for what God is about to do among you. I am a voice that has been sent to say, get ready. I'm a voice that has been sent to say, you better prepare because the Lord is about to do something in this generation that's going to impact all future generations. You need to get ready because God is about to do something. And so the conversation goes on. It says, now the Pharisees who had been sent to question him, they said, well, then why do you baptize if you're not the Messiah? You're not Elijah. You're not the prophet. And then John said, well, I baptize with water. But among you, and I listen, we've got to get the, uh, the image of this. But among you stands one you do not know. There's thousands of people out there in the Jordan River Basin. Thousands of people have flocked out there to listen to John. And John looks at these guys in the middle of this conversation. He says, I baptize with water, guys. But there's one among you right now. He's here. There's one that's here among you right now. You don't know him. But he's going to baptize with fire and with spirit. And they really didn't know what he was talking about, but it was evident that he who was in the crowd that day, that the leaders from Jerusalem did not know who he was, that he was going to offer a baptism that John could not offer. John offered a water baptism, but this person who was there in their midst was going to offer a baptism of fire and spirit, a baptism that could not be duplicated by any prophet or priest. He says, guys, you think I'm something? You think I'm a threat? You think I'm the main deal? No, I'm not the main deal. I'm just the opening act. I'm just here to get people ready to call him up on stage and to step off the stage myself. He, the one that's among you right now, he is the one who's coming after me because I'm going to step off and he's going to step up. He is the one coming after me and the straps of his sandals, I'm not even worthy to untie. And the leaders kind of look at each other and they're thinking, I'm not sure what all this means. And reluctantly, perhaps they turned away and walked back to Jerusalem. John and all the people, they finished what they were doing. And just like every day, they went home at the end of the day. And the next day, just like other days, they got up early and they took a walk, a long walk, out into the wilderness to see what John was preaching that day, to see what was going to happen, who would step forward and be baptized on this new day 
And so as thousands of people were out there listening to John, as they had been for many days, it says the next day, John saw Jesus. John saw Jesus coming towards him. John had been preaching just like I imagine that he'd been preaching every other day. He'd been preaching about religious hypocrisy and he called the religious leaders snakes and a brood of vipers and told them that they ought to repent, turn to God, and then go out and do things that bear fruit of repentance. But all of a sudden, in the midst of him preaching, I imagine that his eyes locked with Jesus. But this time, his eyes locked with Jesus in a brand new way. And as John was preaching and he looks up at Jesus, he gets lost in the moment. His heart begins to race and he gets overwhelmed and he gets overcome with emotion. And in that moment, somehow he just knows in his heart of hearts, this is the moment. This is it. This is the moment that I will introduce him to the world. He was in the crowd the day before and no one knew who he was. But this is the day that I will introduce him to the world. And he lifts up his voice and he says, look, look. And everybody's head had already begun to turn because John kind of got sidetracked and he was looking and you could hear the ruffling among the people in the crowd and people are whispering, what's he looking at? What's he looking at? Who is that? Who's over there? And all of a sudden he just lifts up his voice and he says, look, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And in a moment, John's message changes. He'd been calling out corruption and hypocrisy, but now all of a sudden, it's look, he's here. Let me introduce to you what God is about to do in the world. The Lamb of God who came to lift up and take away the sins of the world. And the Jewish people, whenever they thought of lambs, they thought of sacrifice. They thought of Passover lambs. That every year to celebrate Passover that night in Egypt, when God told them to offer a lamb and to take the blood of that lamb and to put it over the doorpost so that death would pass over. For over 1400 years, they thought of the blood of the lamb as that which saved them from death down in Egypt. And they had celebrated it every year at Passover. Every year during the Feast of Atonement, every year on the Day of Atonement, the priest, the high priest, would offer a lamb and sacrifice that lamb and take the blood of that lamb himself into the holiest of holies and apply the blood of that lamb on the mercy seat as an atonement, as a covering for the sins of the nation. The Jewish people offered lambs in the morning, offered lambs in the evenings. And when Jewish people thought about lambs, they thought about their guilt and they thought about God's grace because it was the blood of the lamb that somehow covered their sins. And all of a sudden, John is saying, look, God himself has provided a lamb. Look at him, the lamb of God that has come to take away the sins of the world. Maybe he was thinking about Genesis 22. Maybe he was thinking about that incident where Abraham took his son Isaac upon the mountain because Abraham believed that God wanted him to sacrifice Isaac. And he didn't understand it. And as bizarre and as, you know, just crazy as it seems to us in our modern sensibilities, Abraham wanted to the best of his ability to obey God. So he took his son Isaac up on the mountain and they took fire and they took wood and he took a knife. And obviously they were going to offer a sacrifice. And Isaac looks at his dad and says, Dad, we've got fire and we've got wood and you've got a knife, but where's the lamb? And Abraham looked at Isaac and says, don't you worry, son, God's going to provide a lamb. And they get up there and Isaac 
willingly lets Abraham for some reason tie him to the altar and Abraham's fully prepared to take the life of his son Isaac and he takes the knife and doing something none of us can even imagine ever attempting to do and he gets ready to take his knife and to run it through his son because he believes this is what God wants him to do and he has the faith to believe that if he kills his son that God can raise him from the dead and just as he's getting ready to go through with it an angel stays his hand and he looks up and over there in the thicket there's a a ram caught not a lamb but a ram and maybe John was thinking about that story and says do you remember how Abraham said that one day God would provide a lamb this is the day that God has provided a lamb look at him look at him maybe he was thinking about Isaiah 53 the suffering servant who came to be wounded and bruised and pierced because of our transgressions and our sins and our iniquities and the suffering servant who would as a lamb led to a slaughter would not open up his mouth. Maybe he was thinking about that to say, there he is. The one who has come to lift up and to take away our sin. And this is why we start here. Because at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, John, but for a moment, pulls back the curtain and shows us what the end of Jesus' ministry is going to look like. At the very beginning of Jesus' public ministry, he shows us what the heart, the intent, the purpose of Jesus' ministry was from the very first introduction. And John declares in his own words that Jesus came to die on the cross in our place for our sin. That's what he was saying. Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. We know the story. We know exactly what John meant meant by what he said lots of people in the crowd that day they could possibly begin to put it together but they couldn't put it together in absolute clarity but for us Jesus's very first introduction to the world by John was Jesus came to die on the cross in our place for our sin everybody here Williamsburg Somerset let's all just read this together Jesus came to die on the cross in our place for our sin but it's even better than that because it's more personal than that Jesus came to die on the cross in my place for my sin. Let's just say that together. Jesus came to die on the cross in my place for my sin. That's how Jesus was first introduced to the world. Not through a sermon, not through his own sermon, but by a declaration, an announcement, a proclamation. Look, behold the Lamb of God who has come for a very specific mission, a very specific purpose, to lift up, to take away your sin, my sin, our sin, the sin of the whole world. John is saying to us in his own way, let me tell you why Jesus came. Jesus came to forgive us. Jesus came to clear the scorecard. Jesus came to erase the wrong. Jesus came to bury the past. Jesus came to just not cover sin, but Jesus came to lift it up and to take it away. And as the psalmist said, as far as the east is from the west, so far he has come to take our sin away from us. He has come to take your sin and my sin and our sin and to cast it into the depths of the sea, to never be brought up against you to never be brought up against me, 
to forgive us so that the way that he feels about us will never change based on how we are or what we do. He came to forgive freely, fully, forever. He came to justify us so that when he looks at you and when he looks at me, he doesn't see your worst moment. He doesn't see my worst moment. He doesn't see the greatest regret of my life. He doesn't see the skeleton in the closet. He doesn't go out in the backyard and dig up what I did and thought I hid. No, when he looks at you and he looks at me because he forgave us, because he lifted up and he took away our sin, he sees you just as if you had never sinned. John says what God is about to do. He came to redeem us, to set us free, to save us from sin, sorrow, and death. He came to take away our sin. Why? To prove God's love for us, to us. This is how Jesus was introduced to the world. That's how Jesus is introduced in the Gospels. Jesus' introduction to the world. Yes, there's some birth narrative that tells us about how Jesus entered the world. But when Jesus was introduced in his public ministry to the world through the Gospels, John said, look, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb of God came into the world to prove the love of God for the world. And what that means is that at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, God wanted you to know that even at your worst and even at my worst, He loves us. In our darkest moment, in the greatest cloud of regret that we've ever tried to work our way through, He loved us even then. He loved us at our best and he's loved us at our worst and he's loved us at all the points in between and the way that he feels about you and the way that he feels about me, it has never, ever changed. And when Jesus showed up, he came to take your sin, my sin, to carry it upon himself. He became sin for us so that we could be forgiven, justified, redeemed, saved, so that our sins could be taken away, never thrown up in your face again, never thrown up in my face again. That means that your past is no longer a memorial of guilt. You may have a hard time forgiving yourself, but you don't have to withhold forgiveness from yourself when it's already been given to you. Who are you to withhold forgiving yourself when God has forgiven you. Your past, my past, it's no longer a memorial of guilt. No, it's recast. The story's been changed. It's still there and I still did what I did. I was still guilty of what I was guilty of, but, but now those are not things that condemn me. Those are things that remind me just how much he loves me and just how great the grace of God truly is. So Jesus, at the very beginning, reminds all of us you don't have to feel guilty over what you've already received grace for you don't have to feel like a failure for what you've already been forgiven for you don't have to be haunted by a past that's already been redeemed 
You don't have to pay for what's, what's already been paid for. And you don't have to hold on to what God has already let go of. And by all means, don't spend time digging up what God has already buried. What can wash away my sin? John says nothing but the blood of the Lamb of God. And that's how Jesus was introduced to the world. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, with our eyes closed and our heads bowed, and in this moment, some of us struggle to let go of the past, and some of us struggle to let go of our failures, and to let go of our inconsistencies. And for those of us who are followers of you, Lord, may we be reminded how much you love us. That you laid down your life to prove to us that you love us. That you've loved us from the very beginning and you will love us without ending. Let us experience that and feel that and receive that. If you're here today and you've never trusted Jesus as Lord and Savior of your life, he came to lift up and to take away your sin. When they took his body down from the cross, on the third day he was raised from the dead to signal to the world that forgiveness and grace is available to all. And all you have to do is pray a simple prayer of faith to say something like this, Heavenly Father, thank you for loving me and proving it to me through your son Jesus who died for me, was buried and raised from the dead so that I could be forgiven forever, fully and freely. Today, I receive that gift of grace, that gift of forgiveness. In Jesus' name, let's all stand together at all of our churches. We're going to sing one last song together, and we're going to be reminded of exactly how God feels about us. Because in the very beginning, Jesus wanted you to know and wanted me to know how he feels about you and how he feels about me. Father, we sing this over our own lives. May it be true in our hearts and in our minds in this moment that you have loved us and you have proved it through your lamb, Jesus, who died for us. In Jesus' name.